Hello and welcome to the View from the Castle podcast, where we talk all things legal finance. I'm your host, Pip Murphy. The legal finance industry is interesting, diverse and forever changing. So here at The View from the Castle, we will talk all things legal finance. We hope to give you the insider's guide to legal finance and provide you with tips and tricks to accessing, obtaining and using legal finance. And we hope to shine a light on those individuals and companies operating in the legal finance industry to showcase their relevant experience and expertise. Each week, I will talk to people who have been there and done that. We will discover what is happening in the legal finance industry and what we can do to enhance and improve it together. Thank you for joining us today for the next Legal Finance and the View from the Castle podcast. Today we are joined by Lara Duvartsidis. Lara is a rising talent at Johnson, Winter and Slattery, one of Australia's leading independent law firms. As an associate, Lara works with partners across the firm to advise major Australian and international corporations on their most challenging legal issues, with a focus on pro bono and commercial litigation, environment and planning law, class actions and modern slavery law obligations. Lara assists in expanding the firm's pro bono practice as a pro bono coordinator. She is passionate about strategic litigation trends, including the convergence of international human rights law with national and international environmental law. Lara previously served as the Associate to the Honourable Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of South Australia. She has been recognised in Australasian Lawyers 2021 Rising Stars list. She holds an advanced Masters in European and International Human Rights Law from Leiden University in The Hague, and she is a valued member of the Business and Human Rights Subcommittee for the Australian Lawyers for Human Rights. Lara has kindly agreed to join us today to talk about the recent case of the Federal Minister for the Environment versus Sharma, which looked at whether the Minister for the Environment owed Australian children a duty of care to avoid the risk of harm from climate change. Well, a very big thank you for joining us today, Lara. Um, Before we get started officially, um, I did have a question that I wanted to ask you to kick things off. Please. My question is, if I met one of your closest friends in the street today and I asked them to describe you to me or to tell me what you are best known for amongst your mates, what do you think that they would tell me? (laughs) I think they'd probably first laugh and ask, why are you asking me this? (laughs) But... (laughs) But they would say probably that um, I am enthusiastic. Enthusiasm has been a word that's plagued me since, you know, primary school. Um, Enthusiastic, kind, hardworking, loves to host a dinner party, um, loves to foster community, uh, very Greek in my mannerisms (laughs) (laughs) and very loyal. I think that's what they'd say. 
But so, um, to any friends listening, feel free to contact me later if you think I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, just on your dinner party um, point, uh, what's what's one person who you would intro- who you would bring along to your dinner party if you had the opportunity? This is a great question, and I've actually thought about this a lot. I've thought about having an entire dinner party where everyone was invited. Now, if it's living or dead, which I'm going to take liberties and assume it is, I think I'd have Cleopatra, just because I think, well, as a someone who, with a Greek heritage, I just think she's so fascinating. You know, she was with two different Roman emperors, <laughs> the last <laughs> of her dynasty. This is no mean feat, you know. <laughs> Well, I'll have to do a little bit of research because um, I haven't Definitely. looked at her for some time. But um, very, very interesting. Well, um, thank you so much for indulging me on uh, this question and then a follow-up question. Um, I think that gives some uh, fantastic insights into um, who you are and what makes you tick. Um, and I think it does feed nicely into the little case note that we're going to talk about today um given your passion and enthusiasm and i know i've seen it myself in terms of your um keenness to be involved in this um podcast recording on this particular case so um if we can jump straight um into the case note lara i think you're going to give us a little bit of a summary about the facts of the sharma case i'll call it the sharma case but you might want to use a more uh, official title um but uh, if you can give us a little summary about the facts, the different stages that this case went through, the findings, and ultimately, you know, we had a, a full um, full court of the federal court findings uh, in March of this year. So what the conclusions of that court um, were. Perfect. Well, let's kick it off by saying this case happened in stages and I think it's important to, before we go to the Court of Appeal decision, um, to look at the original decision of Justice Mordecai Bromberg. Um, I love that his honest first name is Mordecai, um, <laughs> which was handed down on the 27th of May in 2021. So why don't we set the scene? Um, the case, the original decision, uh, was titled Sharma by her litigation representative, Sister Marie Bridget Arthur, uh, and Minister for the Environment. Now, by her litigation representative is, is because uh, Sharma herself was under 18 at the time, and she represented a class of children, uh, Australian children under 18, bringing the action um, a bit of intergenerational equity. So the case itself uh, involved a development consent that was granted for a coal mine called the Vickery Coal Project in northern New South Wales. And that development consent was granted under the Environment Planning and Assessment Act in New South Wales um, back in 2014, so quite a while ago. And Whitehaven obtained the relevant approvals, uh, but coal production hadn't begun yet. And uh, in early February 2016, Whitehaven applied to the Commonwealth Minister for the Environment to expand and extend the project under the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, which from now on I'm going to call the EPBC Act. And that was required as a final form of approval to, um, to, uh, to increase the total coal extraction from the mine to 168 million tonnes 
and it was originally 135 million tonnes. So we're only talking 30-odd tonne more, which is quite uh, small compared to other coal projects across Australia. So long story short, they're just waiting on the final approval from Minister from the Environment, um, Minister Suzanne Lay. Now, the applicants filed a claim saying that uh, the Minister for the Environment owed them and other Australian children a duty of care to avoid harm or injury when exercising her discretion to grant that final approval under the EPBC Act. And they used the law of negligence really um, to discuss whether or not a duty of care existed and focused on the foreseeability of the harm, the relationship between uh, the minister and the children in stages. They also sought an injunction to restrain the minister from granting that approval based on an apprehended breach of the the duty of care that the minister allegedly owed to the children. Um, Now, Justice Bromberg, in his honest decision, uh, it was it was substantial. It was watershed. Uh, it did what no judgment had ever done before, which was recognise a novel duty of care in the law of negligence to say that, yes, the minister does owe a duty of care to children when assessing projects specifically under the EPBC Act and to consider their uh, safety due to increased emissions from emissions-intensive projects that may cause or would cause uh, bushfires in particular and heat waves caused by climate change. So it put the industry in an in absolute tears. Um, and I just want to say uh, Justice Bromberg here, he, he um, his honour um, said or found that there were four, four key factors to support an argument of a close relationship. One was the degree and nature of control the minister could exercise to avoid that harm, that being her approval. Her on, um, sorry, the minister was the only person that could grant the approval. So, you know, she had almost complete control is what he's mm-hmm. said. Then there was the vulnerability of the children themselves, the reasonable foreseeability and the nature of harm. And that was a, um, largely came about due to uh, what is increasingly now used as a form of expert evidence in climate event attribution science. Um, so they said, you know, given all the science, the IPCC reports, it is reasonably foreseeable here that, you know, Australia along with the world is is perilously close now to the tipping edge. Uh, and then finally, the recognised category of the relationship between the minister and the children under the EPBC Act. So his honour ultimately concluded that each of these features supported the recognition of a duty. So that's what is on the ground. And, uh, and Lara, just one question. I mean, you mentioned it briefly before. You talked about it being a watershed decision. And sure. I mean, obviously, no cases that we've seen in Australia looking at this particular point. But is that also the case? Um, are you aware of any other cases with this kind of focus or findings or conclusions globally? Or is this really an internationally uh, precedent case? Sure, and I'm really glad you asked this. Uh, this has been done in beginning in 2015 in the Netherlands. And what I'm going to do is, I think, because you're absolutely right, Sharma itself was actually a bit of a carbon copy of two different cases in the Netherlands, one called the Uganda case and another called the Miller Defensi case. But I think it might be useful for me to go through um, perhaps uh, the Court of Appeal judgment and then compare as to how it fits in internationally because 
in the Netherlands, we had a different outcome with a case like this. Uh, a group did argue that the Dutch government owed a duty of care to its citizens. And unlike Australia, the courts accepted that that jurisdiction was the appropriate forum and ordered quite incredibly um, uh, emissions reduction across the country, which then was followed by policy, which meant that a lot of industry groups, Shell, um, a lot of uh, resource companies were forced to actually close down in the Netherlands, which is quite remarkable. And for a minute there, um, in between the judgment of Justice Bromberg and the uh, full court decision, uh, it may well have been the case that that's where we were going. But with the full court decision shutting down that duty, the door has been closed. But I'd be, I'm very happy to go through some parallels of, of those Dutch cases, uh, perhaps after I go through the court of, or the full court decision, sorry. Yep, that sounds good. Fabulous. So that's the genesis of the original decision. And unsurprisingly, given that we've said it's watershed, uh, the Minister for the Environment appealed. Um, and... Uh, the minister was ultimately successful. Uh, on the 15th of March 2022, judgment was handed down, uh, appeal was allowed, and as a consequence, this duty no longer exists under the EPBC Act, at least for now. Uh, Maybe highly likely to be appealed to the High Court. Uh, so it's a watch and see. So uh, why was it that the minister no longer has a duty? So the judgment itself... Um, I came to learn as I printed it, hot off the press. It's 272 pages long, um, substantial, meaty. Uh, it's a bit to digest, but basically what we have here is three separate opinions from each of the justices of the, the full court bench. So we have 120 pages from Chief Justice Allsop, 93 pages from Justice Beach, and then 56 pages from Justice Wheelahan, all with separate reasons. Mm. Uh, so it's quite... For, for, for Sharma, it was, a, I guess, what you'd call a bit of a smackdown, really. Um, mm. at, every, at every stage, every door, you know, every door was closed here. Um, and so if we'll just go through, and I wish that I could give a quorum, um, I guess, a summary, but it's probably easy to go judge by judge, um, but not in huge detail. But Chief Justice also, of course, head of quorum, uh, his Honour, it was really interesting, he from the outset noted that the factual findings made by the primary judge, Justice Bromberg, were open to be made on the un uncontested evidence. The minister in the original trial actually opted not to adduce evidence at all, um, which is unusual, and Justice Beach did say it was highly unusual um, for them not to do that, and they also chose not to cross-examine Sharma's witness um, expert. Uh, witness. Uh, nevertheless, um, the duty in Chief Justice Allsop's mind threw up questions at the point of breach that the judicial arm of government should not grapple with because to do so would be unsuitable, uh, which flagging the international cases is contra to those cases internationally. Not that Australia has to or would pay any mind to that, but it's really interesting now that we see this divergence here with you know, perhaps common law precedent in Australia versus the civil law doctrine in the Netherlands and the accepting of the courts that it is the correct arbitrator. So that, to me, when I first read the appeal judgment, that was a real 
um, divergence uh, that, that we didn't see in Justice Bromberg's original decision. So Chief Justice also also held that the positive duty was inconsistent and incoherent with the EPBC Act because that act relates to basically flora and fauna, not the safety of human life. Again, another divergence because in the Netherlands, the right to life, the most um, revered, non-derogable human right, um, of course, relates to human safety and strategic litigators internationally read in the right to life in a lot of climate cases because the threat of climate change is so at risk to our human health but also to the ecosystem as a whole which on its own risks our right to life so that to me was another red flag of oh okay we're departing here Mm. Uh, thirdly his Honour said that the consideration of indeterminacy, a lack of special vulnerability um, of the class and a lack of control taken together in the context of the EPBC Act and the nature of the governmental policy considerations necessarily arising at the point of assessing breach makes the relationship inappropriate for the imposition of a duty. And what also got us, Chief Justice also up a bit of attention was his statement and I quote, um, it's important to keep in mind that there has been no attempt by the Commonwealth Parliament to translate international agreements concerning climate change, in particular the Kyoto Protocol and the Paris Agreement, into Commonwealth law. His Honour did not need to make that statement, but His Honour chose to do so. So read into that what you will. Um, bit a bit of a political statement, you think? Perhaps. Uh, I think it's a difficult position for any judge to be in where in the absence of uh, cohesive policy perhaps or if you were to accept the headlines that Australia is out of step with its uh, neighbours, with its, um, Mm. you know, Anglo, I guess, allies on climate change, if you accept that, as I think we should just because it's a matter of fact, it puts the courts in a really difficult position because novel litigation will continue to be brought until there's some harmony across the board. And what Chief Justice also is saying, without speaking to his honour myself, is that this isn't the appropriate forum. There's no policy here. There are no laws grappling with this. But nevertheless, it's not it's not something we can appropriately deal with, mm. um, which I thought was really interesting and a bit of a nudge perhaps for the Commonwealth not that um, judges would ever properly do that, separation of powers and such, but it was unusual, I thought. But anyway, Justice Beach, uh, his judgment was colourful. I actually quite enjoyed reading it. Um, his Honour pointed out he had two reasons. His Honour also pointed out the unusual features of the case at trial and particularly that the Commonwealth didn't adduce expert evidence. Uh, he considered that unsatisfactory. So it was quite uh, clear in his disappointment, perhaps, on that. And the two reasons why His Honour found there was no duty was that there was not a sufficient closeness and directness between the Minister's power under the EPBC Act and the likely risk of harm towards children under 18, being the class of persons with which the representative action was brought. And then His Honour also had concerns about the imposition of indeterminate liability because... In his mind, the class itself, although it was children under 18 in Australia, his honour considered that 
that wasn't easily ascertainable, not because of the size itself of how many children there are in Australia, but because of the difficulty in plucking out those who would be at risk from the bushfires and the heat waves, which was the harm, mm. and those that weren't. And he said for that reason, lack of ascertainability equals indeterminate liability. And for that reason, it was also a no. So again, broadly speaking, departing from these that core right to life, human right argument, which I should say was not in play here at all, but looking at it more broadly from an international lens, I would perhaps think that academics across <laughs> across the Pacific or the Indian Ocean may be slightly confused by that. But for the purpose of our common law, that's that's where it stood. So for any um, potential class action to be brought in the future, that's a really important consideration um, mm. because I think that would be a bar. Finally, Justice Wheelahan, he had three reasons, which I will briefly strike off. Uh, EPBC Act did not create the relationship to support a novel duty, similar to his uh, fellow jurists. There was also an issue of incoherence, his honour thought. And then his honour found it was reasonable foreseeability, sorry, was not made out in this case. So <laughs> for many reasons, um, the duty ended. And I think it's not to say that a novel duty can't be brought in the future in Australia, but it will be difficult. And I think strategic litigators will have to unpick quite significantly where their honours perhaps give hope, the deficiencies perhaps in this case, and then I guess massaging those into something workable. Now, the one thing I will say is it's highly likely that Sharma will appeal. They'll seek leave, sorry, they'll seek leave from the High Court to appeal and special leave applications, pretty hard gate <laughs> to, to, to walk through. But so there's no indication at the moment of, of that, of timing for that? Uh, no, but the window, um, and I'll correct myself if I'm wrong, but I believe it's 28 days. So there's a pretty finite window in which to lodge an appeal after which um, you would have to seek leave of the High Court of Australia. So, And the judgment was the 15th of March? That's right. So probably about two weeks left, I'd say. Uh, so it's all in play here. And two reasons why it might go up or might be, you know, uh, being given the uh, the stamp of approval uh, would be it's the nature of the case, public interest, High Court, that's a salient feature of whether or not the High Court will grant, especially of applications, public interest element, and also the fact that the novel duty throws into question uh, the law of negligence and the law of tort as we know it. Uh, the High Court has reshuffled recently uh, we've had some new appointments and it may be the case that um, Chief Justice Kiefel or um, some of her uh, her fellow uh, judges may be tempted to revisit the law of negligence. And in fact, uh, Justice Beach in his decision at paragraph 754 said, and I quote, it is for the High Court, not us, to engineer new seed varieties for sustainable duties of care modifying concepts such as sufficient closeness and directness and indeterminacy to address the accelerating complexity, multiple links and cross-links of causal relations. <laughs> Sorry. So there's an invitation, if ever I've heard one, for the High Court to step in. <laughs> well, that's what I thought. But then I spoke to some colleagues and I thought, oh, I don't know that we could take it that high. And I, thought, well, <laughs> I think you absolutely can, you know. 
I mean, His Honour decided to say that. It's um, I mean, and Justice Beach also he used a quote from um, President John F. Kennedy in his judgment, which I thought was interesting at the very end, um, in relation to the you know the engineering of new seed varieties. Yeah, it was it was interesting that um, he used this quote from JFK, and it said the great French marshal. Luigi once asked his gardener to plant a tree. The gardener objected that the tree was slow growing and would not reach maturity for a hundred years. The marshal replied, in that case, there is no time to lose. Plant it this afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) That's a very pointed quote. Very, very interesting. Um, Isn't it? So we shall see, basically. In two weeks we'll know a lot more. But if, if the decision stands and it's not, um, picked up by the High Court, then what we have here is is perhaps optimistically a roadmap for strategic litigators on in grappling with <laughs> establishing a novel duty of care in this area, the do's and don'ts. That's how I see it. But certainly for Sharma, it was uh, quite the disappointment and for the industry, um, a welcome judgment to understand more clearly the approvals process under the EPBC Act. So so in relation to that then, you know, we have seen a number of commentators recently saying that there's an expectation that there'll be an increase in climate change class actions or claims being brought and they may be with or without funding. I think in the Sharma case there was some funding for the Grata Institute but I just wondered if you could touch briefly on what you think falling out of this case and and you know, what you're seeing um, day to day. I mean, you are involved in the Public Interest Advocacy Centre as well. Whether you see um, future claims, whether you agree with the commentators that there's likely to be an increase or an influx of cases, um, climate change cases? Definitely. So in no uncertain terms, we are at the precipice of, of a great wave, I think. Climate change cases will continue to be brought in creative ways and in very different areas of law. Um, Climate change law itself, academics debate whether it's the law of the horse or the law of, you know, endurance in the sense that it touches on every law, other law that already exists or whether or not it's a standalone law. And I think increasingly they're realising that climate change law sprinkles across every every law already in existence because every law already in existence will be affected by the complexities of the fallout of uh, a changing climate. So in my mind, yeah, what we're seeing in Australia is human rights actions, of which you perhaps could call this one, to try and expand our understanding of duties of care. Uh, This was based on the fact that human safety was at risk. So that's one example. And it's, I should say, it's, it's really um, clever work because in Australia we do not have a Federal Human Rights Act. We do not, we're not part of a supranational organisation like the Council of Europe, which administers the European Convention of Human Rights, which in turn created the European Court of Human Rights. We're not part of a single market like the EU. Uh, we don't have a constitution that was newly rewritten, like the case in Colombia and South America. Their constitution was rewritten in 1993, and it explicitly includes the right to a healthy environment, which the UN Human Rights Council only recognised a year or so ago. So Australia is really in this um, perhaps dark hole of rights. That's not to say that common law rights don't exist, but 
it is more difficult. And so what we're seeing now is, is litigators that use international cases as inspiration, like the Uganda case and the Millie Defensor case, to transplant them here into Australia in a way that is um, digestible to Australian courts. So you have those cases. And then interestingly, you have um, cases that rely on quite robust laws already. Misleading and deceptive conduct cases is one of them. And you'll know them as greenwashing cases. Greenwashing cases, it's all about relying on the Australian consumer law to match up representations that a company has made to the market with what they've actually done to achieve or to, I guess, um, events is being done. And those cases, greenwashing cases, I think in my mind, actually, greenwashing is too simple a term. Um, it's There's one case at the moment against Santos uh, about uh, its statements around hydrogen and whether or not it, that's greenwashing, whether or not they misled or deceived the market. And misleading and deceptive conduct itself is quite a low bar in Australia, which for litigators is really useful. So although we don't have a Human Rights Act, we have the ability to correct what's being said to the market through these really robust consumer laws. So that that's a new wave, I think. The other three or the other cases that we're, they're seeing, um, it's what's called uh, just transition cases. This is predicted to be by the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment, one of the three key um, trends to expect in the next few years. When we talk about just transition cases, we mean cases that focus on the distribution of the burdens associated with climate action. And in the Northern Territory, we actually had a judgment on the 4th of February 2022 on a case exactly like this, which was to do with the right to housing and um, a habitable home. Um, so in that case, it's Santa Teresa case, it was a class action, and it it involved whether or not um, the NT Housing Corporation had certain duties to its tenants who were uh, an Aboriginal group from the Northern Territory to provide adequate housing for the extreme weather events mm. due to climate change. And there they were ultimately successful. So that's another uh, perhaps uh, pillar that we'll see. And I think that now we're really, we're entering a second phase now of climate litigation where the novel litigation was brought across the world over the last seven years as a consequence of the Paris Agreement, which was introduced in 2015. So we've got one very strong chunk of cases, some with very successful outcomes. And then we now have a second wave where they're more clever, they're building on the precedent already set. And an example of that, the best one I can think of, is on the 15th of March, 2022. So ironically, same day of Sharma's appeal being handed down, the uh, climate, uh, client earth, sorry, um, uh, climate law group announced their bringing of a derivative action in the United Kingdom against Shell for failing to take adequate steps under companies law to mitigate and adapt to climate change. It would risk the reputation and the value of the company. And that's because in the Uganda and the Millie Defensi cases, it was Shell that those cases were against. And the government found that not only did the did the Dutch government owe a duty of care, but also that Shell owed, because of an unwritten standard of care, they owed a duty to cut their emissions also. And so you see, okay, we've got your judgment. We secured a judgment against you in 2021. Uh, we've given you a bit of time. 
and we're not seeing enough action here, so we're going to go for your board. That's, I think, the new wave as well. Mm. Really interesting to hear about those three limbs. I think um, at least one of those is novel to me. Certainly mm-hmm. there's been some, as I said, some commentators talk, talking about the the increase of these climate change um, type cases, but it's a fantastic sort of summary that you've given and really clear in terms of those different phases and different limbs and and always interesting to see how cases overseas do have an impact and an influence on what is happening here in Australia. So um, that, that's been absolutely fantastic. Um, thank you so much for that very comprehensive and, and very interesting case summary um, and your insights into the your predictions for the future. Um, I just want to thank you again for your time and passion today. And I'm sure uh, it's a bit of a watch this space and we'll have you back when uh, when and if there is an appeal um, in relation to the Sharma case and um, just look forward to chatting with you about that then. Definitely. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Lara. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye. Hi there, that's a wrap for the View from the Castle podcast for today. We hope you have picked up some useful tips and tricks and enjoyed listening to all things legal finance. If you want to continue the conversation, please reach out via email or via our website, castle.com.au. We would love to discuss what you are seeing in the legal finance industry and what we can do to enhance and improve it together. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another fabulous conversation.